Welcome to the Colors of Fatherhood podcast. Here, we shine a positive light on fathers of color and seek out their stories of trial and triumph while gaining insight on what it means to raise children in this country we call America. A quote from Dr. Franklin Pittman states, Fathering is not something perfect men do, but something that perfects the man. And now, your illustrious host, Lim Gonzalez. What's good, everybody? It's your boy, Lim Gonzalez, a.k.a. Saint. And this is the Colors of Fatherhood podcast. As I always say, I have to have special guests. And again, this is no exception. This brother is the Poet Laureate for Richmond, Virginia. He has a one-hour special, Tromedy, centered around poetry and comedy on Amazon Prime right now. And he has another special set to be released on Father's Day of 2022 called My Life as a Black Dad. And of course, he's on this podcast because he's an amazing father. Ladies and gentlemen, Roscoe Burnham's. What's good? What's good? What's, what's good, good, man? I'm good, man. I am good. How are you? I'm exhausted. <laughs> he said, I am exhausted, actually. And that's what I am. Man, tell me about it. What's going on? I know you got the kids. They're in the background right now, of course, doing what they're doing. But how's everything? How's life, man? How's the family? Life is good. Exhausted isn't always a bad thing. You know, I'm, I'm working hard, I'm trying to make sure I'm, I'm handling things for all the people that need uh, that need me in the house. And so that, that comes with some exhaustion, but it's I'm proud of it, though. Word, word. No, of, of course, of course. I'm really excited because I really want to talk to you, especially about this new special you have coming out, because obviously this podcast is centered around fatherhood. But prior to that, I want to get into you becoming a father. So first question I typically ask most of my guests is, how did your life change when you first became a father? Everything changed. So I have two kids. My daughter is 14. She'll be 15 in January. And mm-hmm. then I have a five-year-old son. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so a bit of a eight, bit of a is a almost ten. Well, about ten years, give or take. Mm-hmm. Very different points in my life. Uh, I had my daughter. I was about nineteen. I just turned twenty when she was born. So couldn't even like legally drink yet. <laughs> I was still a kid, you know, for the most part. You know, I mean, I was still trying to figure myself out. And I'm very transparent about what my mental health journey looked like at that time for me because I was really depressed and very suicidal as a teenager. And so coming out of that, like I was still kind of in that mindset. And so honestly, it sounds wild, but like when I got the call from my now ex-wife that she was pregnant, I was actually sitting on the the rail of an overpass, dangling my feet off the off the off the rail, trying to convince myself to jump. And then I got oh, this wow. call and, and found out that, you know, I was I was gonna be a dad. We weren't, you know, we were beefing at the time, me and her mom and but I was really excited. I know a lot of dads get nervous. And I mean, I think some nerves come with it. But I was really excited to be a father. And it changed everything because it gave me like a whole new purpose when I was struggling trying to find mine. So would you say, based on on that uh, alone, would you say that having this child saved your life, in a sense? Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely, man. Like, I was in a bad place mentally wow. prior to having my daughter. And, you know, having this other human that's like, hey, look, I need you around changes you as a person. Right. You know, look, I had some pitfalls along the way, but it I, it gave me a different level of determination 
to try to be something better than what I was and becoming a, the best version of myself for her. And then, and then realizing that, you know, like I need to do this for me as well. You have 14 and then you have the youngest that's five and very talkative as we were listening to earlier. How yes. can you talk about your experience of when you had your first child and then your second some years later? With my son, I was in a, a very different place in my life. I was more stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in a healthier place mentally. He's getting a different, like kind of early adolescent experience that my daughter got. You know, I was still broke when I had my, my daughter. I was struggling. I was I was this poet trying to make some things happen. She was on the road with me a lot. It was just me and her. You know what I mean? My son is getting the full two-parent household. I got, got ourselves into a better neighborhood. You know, they're going mm-hmm. to a good school. I'm able to be there for him in a way that was very different for me because I didn't grow up with a dad. Mm-hmm. But even a little more different than what my daughter got. Like my daughter still got all the nurturing because I, I pretty much raised her on my own. Okay. As a, like a single father. Right, because so I got I got custody of her when she was four. Mm-hmm. You know, me and her mom went through a lot of drama. You know what I mean? Just you know, and so it was a very tumultuous time in my life, and that spills over. You know, a lot of times what we have going on in, in our own lives and uh, as adults can spill over into your child's life because you know they're so closely attached to you. So she got a lot of that. You know what I mean? And so uh, you know, uh, my son isn't getting that that same experience. He's getting this more peaceful, more well put together experience. Hmm. I see. I see. How do you find, because they're so different in age, um, when you're raising your children, do you have any difference in the way that you raise them because either one's a daughter, one's a son, their age difference, the fact that you're in different places? How does that work or how do you how do you work that out when you're raising your children together? I don't really make a lot of different choices in regards to gender, right? My children are people, you know, my son is very young. You know, what I mean, he may identify as something differently when he gets older, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, he's, that's a journey. That's a that's a journey for him. That's his own personal thing. But like, I don't believe in like altering like the the parenting plan, if you will, mm-hmm. um, because one's a boy and one's a girl. Like at the mm-hmm. end of the day, I need them. I need them to be you know respectful. I need them to. Uh, I, I want them to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want them to communicate, you know, out properly. Like I want them to have these foundations that all humans need in order to be productive and helpful members of this society that we live in. I think there are some parenting differences because of the age gap. Okay. My daughter, you know, like I tell people all the time, I mean, look, the, the first kid is the experiment. You don't, you don't know what you're doing. Okay. <laughs> right. right. Sorry, firstborns. Hey, Sorry, firstborns. Hey, hey, that's me. That's me. Yes. So, it is. It I, I do subscribe to that. Absolutely. <laughs> You know what I mean? The second child, you start to kind of get it right. But the first mm-hmm. that the first kid is the experiment. You mm-hmm. know? So, you know, with that said, my daughter came into my life while I was still finding myself mm. and trying to figure out what type of parent I wanted to be. And so and she's been very transparent about it, too. She, you know, she was like, you didn't you weren't really that confident when I was a, I was a kid. You know, I could tell you didn't know what you were doing. Really? And yeah. And so she's like, now you seem like you got it now. So that causes obviously a lot of different parenting decisions. And so the thing I go into this with is I try to be as honest with my kids as humanly possible. And I try to prepare them as much as I can. And that's a constant, no matter, you know, you know what the kid is. Gotcha. Okay. I want to shift gears here and uh, talk about, you know, the profession that you're in. You're a teaching artist, obviously the poet laureate um, of Richmond. So uh, you have a lot on your plate and, and as an artist and and what you do um, with the community and all of that. How does that come into play with raising your children? So it's been really important to me to really kind of lock in on doing something that I love so that they can see that in action. I didn't get a lot of that just from my family in general. I come from a very like 
super traditional Southern Baptist hmm. workaholic kind of family where it was just like, grow up, get a good job and you work, you know what I mean? You pay your bills and raise your family. And then that was it. You work, you pay bills, you retire, you die. That's the, that's it. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the, wow. the, the end. <laughs> right. And I wanted more. I wanted more than that, or at least something different. I wanted something mm. different than that. So I made this leap into doing something, having a profession where I, I get to do what I love. And so it's important for my children, to, for me, for, for my children to see that so that whatever they fall in love with, they know that they can turn that into a career. They can monetize that and they can live off that waking up every morning and doing what they love to do. Now, when you say that, um, obviously you come from a more traditional uh, family structure where you just work and then you die, <laughs> uh, essentially, as you put it, summarizing, uh, did you get any pushback from your parents um, or your family when you decided to go the route that you did? Yeah. I mean, my mom didn't really get it. She didn't understand how poetry could be like a lucrative mm-hmm. profession. Even when I would tell her, oh, I'm going to go do a gig or I'm teaching a workshop at this school. And she was like, oh, that's nice. You're still doing your poetry thing. There were times throughout my career where, you know, the money was coming in slow. So I would pick up a like a, a regular job or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so she was like, oh, you got a like, you got a job or you got a real job or you got a, you know. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I, oh, I'm already working. This is kind of helped me, you know, during the slow season. You know, she right. didn't, you know, when I, when that happened, then she would say, oh, you know, look at you. You're working and stuff. Not realizing that I was working before. Because this right. this can be work as well. So like, it took me to do this to for her to kind of open up her, her you know what I mean the lens that she had about what success could look like and what work could look like. Sure, I know. I remember just my own personal journey as a poet, and I remember coming from uh, again also a traditional household, traditional Christian household. Both my parents are pastors, and so um, yeah, exactly. And so when I started doing poetry, I started in the church, but I started it as you know more or less a hobby. I kind of took it outside of that and then learned about the essence of poetry and how people do it for a living. Um, and I started meeting artists that would come to my area and perform. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they do this for real. And then just finding all the nuances and then, you know, learning slam and finding out about that culture and just seeing again that people do this and this is something serious and again, a profession. And I remember when I was seeking out to just to be more serious about it and telling my family about it and uh, kind of getting the pushback because I was like, hey, I really want to give my all into this this art form that I love, that I feel like, you know, um, I have some talent in. And then them kind of saying, well, you should really follow this way. It took some time, I guess, is what I'm trying to say for them to realize what I was really about and doing this poetry thing. So I'm always curious to see people's journey when um, they're an artist, you know, or they go against, you know, the traditional family values that they may have growing up and what is expected for you having a job. Because, you know, some parents may see like, no, you have to go to college. You have to go to college. We want you, our family's all been doctors, so you need right. to, you know, do the same lineage or what have you. So I'm just always curious about people's journey. So, yeah, I mean, I think my mom started to kind of like really see it when uh, I think two things happened. When I started booking more shows and being like, oh, I'm going to go perform at George Washington University or mm-hmm. I'm going to go and, you know, I'm going to be in Texas for a weekend because I this is the part of my tour. You know, I'll tell her that, oh, I got a check from you know, Richmond Public Schools because they want me to come in and do workshops for our first nine mm-hmm. weeks. So like st- stuff like that was like, oh, you're, you know, you're really doing it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She didn't, you know, I think that helped kind of change her mind a little bit. You know what I mean? Because like, and, and, and to be clear, my mom never discouraged me from doing it. Okay. She just didn't understand what it could be. 
Mm, gotcha. You know what I mean? So she liked that I was doing something that I, I, I enjoyed, but she didn't see the vision. Sure. So it sure. wasn't like she wasn't like trying to discourage me. She didn't. She never kept me from doing it. She never mm-hmm. discouraged me. Like if I needed her to watch the, the kids while I go do a show, she was mm-hmm. always down. She never did that. She just never was like super supportive because she just didn't really get it. But I was booking more gigs and I was doing more stuff. And then my mom had gotten like really sick really right around the time I became a father. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was taking care of my mother off and on a lot. You know, the sicker she got, the more, obviously, the more involved I was in making sure that she went to doctor's visits, had everything mm-hmm. she needed, groceries, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And so now when she saw me paying for her groceries, for example, with poetry money, right? you know, it starts to set in like, oh, he's out here like really making this, making this work. Mm. Oh, I see that. Just to piggyback off that, my mother or my father never discouraged me either. It was just uh, a point of like, well, we want you to invest your time solely into the church. We want you to do this route because this we feel like is your calling. And I felt my thing was like, okay, well, if God is giving me this ability, then I should really foster that. I should really tap into that. And I can use it as ministry. I can use it, you know, for the church. I can use it for other things other than, you know, what it's this box that, you know, I've just, because I'm new and I'm just trying to figure this out because I was trying to figure it out too. I mean, I, I came into the game still in my thirties, you know, so I came in on the later end and just trying to figure out what poetry was and what, you know, could do be as a career. And I was never a full-time poet. Let me just put that out there. But just finding out just the seriousness of what the art form can be and kind of where it can take you and right. just kind of getting into that. But yeah, I just, I just always, uh, I'm curious about that. Well, when you talk about going back to being a father and some of the challenges that you have, what would you say for you personally, Roscoe, were some of the challenges you had kind of coming up as, as a father? Getting them to tie their damn shoes. Why can't kids tie their shoes? Man, people think changing diapers is hard. Try getting a five-year-old to understand that you got to make the loop and then you got to go around and you got to put your finger through the loop. No, 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 not that loop. The other loop, you got to push the other. T- Man, whoever invented tying shoes needs their behind, like, never mind. I'm on a tangent. But listen. I see it's a circle contention for you. I just my son just learned how to tie his shoes, so, so oh, okay. it's very much at the forefront of my mind. It's overrated. I like Velcro now. I just I want all <laughs> Velcro things. But no, so I mean, with parenting, I think sometimes the the hard the I've reached a part in my my parenting journey that's probably the most difficult for me, mm-hmm. and that's because my daughter is now a teenager, like an official teenager. Okay, you know, obviously she has she has her own personality, she has her own interests and and goals and. You know, she's now she's navigating high school and the fear that comes with that for a parent is overwhelming sometimes. And it, and not just because it's, it's my daughter, just like the world is so scary. And that starts by the time you really get to high school. You know, what I mean, the world is so much bigger than what she knew before. And she's going to start driving. And she's going to start going places on her own. And I'm like, dang, man, like I can't I can't hover. I can't. You know, I can't keep you safe 24-7. You know, she wants to hang out with friends. She wants to go to the mall, like, without me. You know what I mean? And I just know how scary the world can be for a Black kid living in America, particularly because we live in Virginia. It doesn't always feel safe. It doesn't always Mm. feel safe. And so I worry about that for both of my children. You know what I mean? Like, um, especially for my son. You know, my son is, you know, is going to be a teenager one day and we know how black boys get treated uh, out here in these streets. You know what I mean? So like, that's a huge fear. And as a a dad, I always want to save the day. I just want to pick him up and I just want to hold him and I want to carry him back home. And 
the letting go part is very difficult as a parent. And I'm approaching it with my, my daughter now as she, you know, pr- you know, goes through high school, gets prepared for college or whatever she wants to do after. She mm-hmm. wants to travel to New York. She wants to go across seas. She wants to travel the world or whatever. And I'm like, you're not going to want me hanging around with you while you, you know, when you want to take your first trip to Japan. And so it's like, but I have to trust that she, that I've raised her, you know, in a way so she can handle herself and make it back home safely. When I think of, uh, and again, I always say this and everyone knows about this podcast, I'm not a parent. So I always come from an objective point of view. I have parents and my parents are amazing. And so that part, I know, I also know other friends that are parents and other family members that are parents, but it seems like one of the things that I see as a recurring theme is the letting go part that you mentioned. The fact that you have to, at some point you like, you got to let them live. You got to let them, what they, what you've instilled in them as their parent, you have to let that, you know, breathe. You have to let that go and see how they do. And I think that it's very, it's very tough from what I understand for the do that. I mean, I just visited my family. Um, I just got back from visiting them last night. Um, they live in Northern California and my mother is like, do you have to go right now? Like, why can't you stay longer? I'm like, well, mom, I got got to go home. Like, you know, like I got stuff to do. Yeah. And her thing is like, no, you should be here with me. And I'm 45 years old. You know what I'm saying? Uh, she got other <laughs> kids. She got grandkids, you know, but she's like, uh, you know, I just want you to stay here. I, I feel like no matter how old you get, like it just always is something. Where do you think that comes from? I think that that type of like protection is, is kind of innate. You created this being, you created this thing. And like with anything, you you know, when it belongs to you, you don't want nothing to, to happen to it. Like um, mm-hmm. you want to try to keep it as safe as possible. And so you feel safer with it in your in your arms, in your hands, you know, because once you let them go out into the world, the world is not guaranteed to, to catch them when they fall. You know what I mean? They, they will likely not do that, honestly. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, you know, you have to trust that you, there's a lot of trust that comes with parenting. You know what I mean? You have to be you, in trusting the world around you, trusting people. Um, mm-hmm. Trusting the village and the community that your children are are a part of, and then trusting that you did a good job. I can't remember who who said it, but I was listening. I was listening to a podcast, and the guy was like, "You know, parenting is is like the only job where you don't know if you got it right until way down the line." Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> that's very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yes. Yes. No. Absolutely. Because you got to see what happens with your fruit, essentially, what you've created and what you've instilled. Right. Because, like you said, it's not a, an instant gratification type thing. You know, you teach them something, and then the next day they're going to instill it. You know, or they're going right. to uh, they're going it's going to manifest itself. You know, um, so it may take several years for you to see the fruit of what you put into them. So that that's a very interesting statement. I like that. I want to segue into talking about. About your special that you ha- have filmed already that's set to be released next year, My Life as a Black Dad. What prompted you to do that? So my, my kids are a large part of, of who I am, man. I, I, am, I love fatherhood. I have loved it since, you know, since I had my, my daughter, you know what I mean? And which was very, you know, early in my, in my life. But, you know, I, again, I was, I was barely an adult when mm-hmm. I became a father, but I fell in love with it instantly. And I tell people like, people are, you know, love all the fun things about parenting. Right. But like when it's, when it's hard and it's sleepless nights and it's, it's worry and it's angst and it's, you know, like I, I loved all of it though. I loved all the experiences because I knew it was going to, you know, she, my daughter, you know, just to 
talk about kind of where I started with this. You know, my daughter's going to grow up into to be her own person, and mm-hmm. I'm excited to see what that looks like for her. I'm excited to see that journey and know that I played a large role in that. You know what I mean? They become a large part of my life. I write about them constantly. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of my work, a lot of my art is centered around fatherhood and masculinity and just, you know, creating these challenging conversations so that we start to kind of destigmatize what fatherhood looks like or kind of rip away the stereotypes of Black men not being in the lives of their children, mm-hmm. uh, which is a myth. It's a myth yes. that yes. has um, existed for a very long time. There's nothing true about it. I, I bring it up in the special, but there was a, a study, uh, National Health, Health Statistics and the CDC both did a study that showed that Black men are more involved in their children's lives than any other race in America, including white men. Really? Yeah. There was a study done in like 2018. Don't give me you know, lying about the year, but I want to say it was around 2018. They but it wasn't 30 study. years ago. No, 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 it wasn't 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a very, very recent study, as, as recent as maybe five or, you know, five or six years ago uh, mm-hmm. at this point. But yeah, but we've always held on to the myth that black children are growing up with no fathers. Mm-hmm. Now, with that, you know, but what that, what that, what that study showed is that even if they're not growing up in the traditional two parent household, whether they're a product of divorce or their parents never married or whatever the case may be, fathers aren't just abandoning their children, mm. right? They're still finding ways to be in their children's lives, you know what I mean? And, and pre- you know, present themselves as, as, as role models, you know, but we've held on to the stereotype that black men are absent, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Myself included, because I grew up fatherless. Mm-hmm. But now I realize that I'm, I was in the minority, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And now when I think back on it, honestly, all of my homeboys, their dad was in their lives. You know what I mean? My cousin grew up with a two-parent household. My mm-hmm. my homeboy Kyle, his parents divorced, but he he was at his dad's house every weekend mm-hmm. and then pretty much all summer. You know what I mean? So like they were spending they were getting that that quality time with their fathers. I was in the minority, but we've always held on to the the position that black men aren't around, but that's a myth that's been fed to us mm-hmm. via media, propaganda, system, you know, systemic racism, so on and so forth. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that's literally one of the reasons I created it for two reasons, but one of the reasons and probably the main reason for creating this particular podcast is due to that myth. Because I was looking around and I was like, wait a second, you know, I know about the myth. I know it exists, but here I know personally, I can count on, you know, like 50, just off the top of my head, fathers that are in the home, that are positive, that are holding it down. And so if I personally know 50 fathers just off the top of my, I mean, I know more, but just off the top of my head that I can put out there, then I know that it's more, you know, and I, and I want to dispel that myth. And that's why I created this podcast to basically show and celebrate fathers of color and then, you know, their stories and and whatever it is. And we know that it's not a perfect situation because there's always going to be, you know, struggles that come up. I mean, just being, and and we're, if we talk about black fathers and specifically, or just black men, we know that, you know, there's always a stigma or there's always a target on us. uh, right? Right. Just in this country and what we have to go through dealing with racial oppression, dealing with the other things that we come against. And so obviously that is going to meld into when you are a father and how you are with your kids. You know, sometimes that can take its toll. And so it's never, you know, it's not always perfect. But like you said, there's always we're going to find ways to be there. We're going to find ways to be present. Um, And that is the majority of the situation, not the minority. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So you created this and obviously it's um there's some humor in it I'm assuming because being a dad is humorous of course. 
Yeah. So, you know, I'm really candid about, you know, parenting struggles and kind of where I started, everything from having to deal with a teenager and getting all the teenager attitude and all Mm -hmm. that. And even, you know, when I started and being a complete novice, you know what I mean? Like not even knowing how to really change diapers and, Mm. you know what I mean? So, and having to navigate this, especially because like my first one was a girl, right? Mm -hmm. So, like and I and I came into this not really knowing anything, so my son was a lot easier to 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 deal with when it came to the baby portion uh, of fatherhood. You know what I mean? Like changing diapers was a, was a breeze. I already knew what I was doing, and the plumbing is the same. You know what I mean? I knew what to I knew what to look for. You know what I mean? So you know what I mean? So like, but with with my daughter, I'm new at this, right? I got mm-hmm. I got nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Changing diapers is is awkward. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a arduous process. You know what I mean? And kids don't care. Kids will just like whenever that whenever the pee is ready, it's coming at you. Okay, so you got to be swift. Mm-hmm. You got to be swift. Okay, right. <laughs> so like you know, it's it, it comes with a lot. And so and my and my kids are getting a different experience than what I got. You know what I mean? Like I grew up dirt poor, you know what I mean? Like we grew up in a, a little two bedroom house, one bathroom, there six people in the house, you know mm. what I mean? But you know, we, my wife and I have worked really hard. And so like my kids are growing up, they got their own room, you know mm. what I mean? They got, you know what I mean? They got, their, they got their own bathroom. I'm like, you better appreciate all of this, okay? All right, let me tell you something. You know what I'm saying? You see that sink? That's your sink, all right? right I ain't right. had no sink when I was your age, right? right we didn't get right. sinks. <laughs> oh, that's comedy. We had to use outhouse, man. This is we're here. struggle. Struggle yeah. real out here. Oh man. No, I I think that's good. I think that's really good. And um I think it's really good to show like all the nuances of fatherhood, right? Uh yeah. and just parenting, because from again, the stories that I've heard and, and interviews I've had and just the people that I know, it's an interesting journey. And, and we're talking now about fathers. Fatherhood is an interesting journey to take. You titled it My Life as a Black Dad. So right. that being said, how important is race when it does come to raising your children? So yeah. So I was just about to say, like parenting can be difficult just in general, right? Fatherhood can be can be a lot uh, on its own. But when you add race to it in a country whose history looks like America's history. Mm-hmm. You have to get your kids to navigate the world very differently. You know what I mean? Like, you know, my daughter already knows. I'm like, listen, right now you, we live in a world where like you're going to make, you're statistically you're going to make 66 cents less on the dollar than mm-hmm. your white counterparts. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You unfortunately live in a world where you got to work three times as hard just to be considered half as good. Hmm. And and so you got to prep your kid knowing that they're coming into a system that is still working against them, even though there's so many things that's trying to change that. They have to know how to be safe in a, in a country that doesn't always look kindly uh, upon them. You know what I mean? Like both of them, but my son especially, because he's more likely to be seen as a threat by the time he's 14, hmm. 15, 16, 17. And so when we see stuff like how all the Black Lives Matter protests popped up in Virginia and DC and 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 we seeing how like how they're being treated but then the insurrection happened on my daughter's birthday. Oh really? Yeah, you know what I mean? So like she blowing out candles, they busting windows out the Capitol. Like that's what was happening all wow. at once, you know what I mean? And so like we turning on the news and we seeing white people scale scale the Capitol and threaten mm-hmm. police officers and threaten government officials and nothing's happening and I'm like that looked really different doesn't it than what these protests that we these rallies that we were at and these mm. protests that we saw on TV so mm. you need to know you ain't the same not here you know what I mean they're not looking at you the same you know what I mean mm-hmm. who they consider a threat looks very different 
And so, you know, you gotta, you gotta be careful. You know what I mean? And my daughter, you know, she goes to a very like very mixed crowd at her school. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So she's got friends that are all shades. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is good. Like we raise her. To, that's how we raise her. We want you to be inclusive. We want you to love people for who they are and not what they look like. But I still need you to be aware of what you look like. Mm-hmm. So when when you riding in the car with Samantha and y'all going to the mall, if y'all mm-hmm. get pulled over, just notice Samantha going to say some things that you can't say. OK. All right. So right. you, you you gonna have to just chill. You sit in that passenger seat and you don't you say nothing. OK. All right. <laughs> let, let Samantha do all the talking. Right. You know, you let her get in trouble. All about stuff. She's going to get away with a lot of stuff. All right. That you ain't finna get away with. So you just stay put. All right. You just. So, like, you got to be, they got to be prepared for that. You know, it's an unfortunate reality. It's not the world that I want for my children. As a black father, I know that this is the world that I, I have to prepare them for until it, until it's different, until it shows me different. Right. I mean, you're in the DMV area, um, being there in, in yep. Virginia. When you talk about insurrection, you're close to the capital um, in, yeah. as far as proximity and region. Can you talk about like what that area is for people of color? I'm just curious. Yeah, Virginia, man, Virginia is a... Uh, is an interesting place to, to grow up in, especially in, in Richmond. You know, it's the capital of Virginia. You know, at, at one point, you know, Virginia was the, the capital of the Confederacy. And so mm-hmm. you know, we've, the city itself has been on the news because of all the statues that were being torn down and all the protests and uh, about tearing them down, all the protests mm-hmm. in retaliation to them being torn down mm-hmm. and all the tension that that created. Mm. in the city but in retrospect it's ridiculous right like why are we even holding on to these to these things that that show this country in such a a horrible light but some people don't see that as a horrible light and they want to hold on to this these were the confederate leaders right right they were confederate generals and things of that nature so they want to hold on to that that's their heritage quote unquote Mm -hmm. but it also is it serves as a reminder of like knowing my place knowing my Mm -hmm. place in this country because of what they represented and what they stood for. And so now mm-hmm. when those things are being torn down, it's tearing down a world they want to hold on to, a reality they want to hold on to, as opposed to me, juxtaposed to me looking at it as tearing down these symbols of oppression. So mm-hmm. it creates a lot of tension. It creates a lot of you know tension in the city. And yeah, so like the, for a while, the city was hot. You know what I mean? The city was hot. Like there was, there was protests happening like every day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There was property being damaged, windows being broken, fights breaking out, wow. people pushing back against the police, mayors in- instituting the curfew. Like it was for a minute, it was it was hot. Not too long after the George Floyd murder, it was hot. And so the, ten- the tension had already started building because of the statues. And then of course now you add on this, this blatant murder mm-hmm. onto that. And it was just a uh, it was just a, a recipe for for disaster. Mm. So it wasn't just we weren't just watching it from D.C. and seeing right. all the craziness down here. Like it was happening here in the city to the point where I was like, man, like I'm glad to see that people are really pushing back against all these systems. Mm-hmm. I want to be there because I got invited to like come to like protests, come to rallies, things of that nature. But I'm like, mm, I can't even I can't even do it because I don't know how this is going to go down. And I want to make it back to my kids. Mm. You know what I mean? So like it's changed even the way that I move about using my own platform. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's changed. It's changed everything. You know what I mean? Because no kids, I would have been out there, guns are blazing. Let's tear some stuff down. But right. you know, and I and I still feel that way, but I want I gotta do this in a in a way that you know, it's not going to jeopardize the safety of my family. Right. And so that's a constant thing in the mind of a black man, a black father, that's a constant. Mm-hmm. 
you man, you have to constantly think about like whatever little move I make, you know what I mean, in regards to especially when you when we're talking about race, any any little move I make could have this explosion at any given time, right? Any interaction with racists, any interaction with with police, it could all go south at any given moment. So I, I have to be very cautious about that because at the end of the day, I'm a father first and I want to be a father tomorrow. Right. No, those are great points. And um, I'm really glad, you know, you explained that because I think obviously, regionally speaking, you know, there, there's differences, right? When it comes to living where you live. I, I obviously from California, all I know is California. Right. And uh, obviously I know the world around me because, you know, I, right. you know, I, um, I'm aware of that. But as far as my own, what I've dealt with being in California is going to be um, somewhat different than someone who's living in the South or living where you, where you live and dealing right. with that tension of, of people who want to keep up Confederate figures and and as a symbol of oppression and all of that. So I'm just always curious about what that is like in retrospect. I remember this is something that sticks out into me when uh, Katrina happened in uh, New Orleans. When that happened, I remember there was a guy that I know who was from Shreveport, which is nearby. And I remember him saying to me, because he you know had visited California and knew about kind of how California was set up. We were having a conversation about you know, what happened with Katrina and, and, you know, the stuff that didn't hit the news. Right. Right. He said down here, he's like, it's different. And when you talk about like a black person in, in, in New Orleans and what they've seen and what they go through is going to be vastly different, that experience than someone who's, let's say from like where you're from in California. And at that point I was really young. So I was just kind of finding myself in the world and, and learning about, you know, my surroundings, but I didn't never, I had never thought about it that way um, right. up until that point, because I'm thinking like, well, you know, Black people are black people or people of color are people of color. You know, it doesn't matter where you are. You know, it's going to be the same experience. And until he brought that to me and kind of how people were being treated and, you know, just just the really the the ugliness of, of what that experience and what it meant for black people specifically and how people were being raped in the Superdome. I mean, it was just it was just really, really bad. And these again, this is stuff that wasn't hitting the news, but this is stuff right. that was known amongst the people and how like certain, you know, people in jail had got released because, you know, the water and, and stuff like that. I'm always curious, um, because I want to just be on top of things when it comes to people's experiences, right? Um, and as a poet, I know that because when you hear poetry, even, and you can probably attest to this, poetry, people um, who are poets out of New York, their poetry and, and what they're writing about is going to be different from someone from Hawaii, for instance, right? Right. Or someone from a different region. It's just because you're writing about your experiences and about right. your journey and your challenges and, and everything that comes in your life, right? I just think right. it's different. I just think it's interesting. The thing is very interesting. I agree. I find it fascinating. And it, you know, your environment is always going to kind of shift your art. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in the South, you're dealing with a type of, you're constantly dealing with, even if you're not dealing with these like overt racist people, right? Because it's not always that obtuse, mm -hmm. but it's sometimes it's, it's very, not to continue to use geometric terms, but it's very acute. It's very nuanced. And mm -hmm. it's like, you deal with a sense of like white entitlement on a regular basis. Mm. And so it's, it's those microaggressions that lead to like bigger things. That part is a constant, you know what I mean? And like how you, how you shift and how you navigate. And so mm -hmm. like, yeah, like, so like stuff like that breathes poems. Like I have a, a piece about uh, called metaphysics, which talks about white privilege mm -hmm. living in that type of environment every single day. 
it breathes that type of, of poetry because this is something that I have to experience on a regular basis. And, you know, and, and poetry is, you know, we both know it's like it's designed to tell your story. Right. right? You want to tell your story and you want to shed. You kind of want to highlight these things that don't actually get talked about enough. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, this becomes your platform to do so. Absolutely. No, 1000%. When you're raising your children, have you adopted any of the principles that you were instilled with with your parents? So kind of. My mom is the reason I'm a good dad. Mm-hmm. She wasn't the parent that she she wanted to be because she was raising us on our on her own. Mm. Um, so she felt like she kind of had to play both roles. And so for that, she wasn't really like affectionate with us for real, for real. Because this was a time where you know you don't want to you don't want to raise your boys to be soft, right? You know, so like you got to be kind of you know you got to be hard with them, you got to be tough with them all the time. And mm. so my mom really tried her best to be that. Even though what she wanted to do was coddle us, what she wanted to do was hold us, and she wanted to be more nurturing, but she felt like she didn't really have the place to do that. And knowing that information now as an adult and having those conversations with her, and I guess really even before having those conversations with her, I'm actually more of that to my kids. You know what I mean? I'm super affectionate. Mm. I'm super nurturing. Like I've, mm-hmm. I've turned into the, my, you know, my homeboys back in the day. You can't really say this now. I turned into Mr. Mom. You're like, oh, you're not the dad. You're the mom. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, cause I, that's how I, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very much like that kind of traditional kind of like mother figure with my kids. Cause I didn't mm-hmm. really get that particular thing from, from my mother. Right. Mm-hmm. And then subsequently my dad wasn't around. So I wanted to make sure that I was going to be like a good father, the best father that I could be. So I learned a lot of things from things that I felt like were lacking in my in my childhood. And there were some things that I adopted from my mother as well. Like my mother was more likely to talk to us than she was to like whoop us or beat us. And that mm. doesn't mean that we didn't get whooped. We got beat <laughs> a lot. Okay. A lot. Still was prevalent. <laughs> yeah. No, it was it still it still happened. But I was Again, I was fortunate. I was I was kid number two. Uh-huh. I got to see my brother mess up a lot, so uh-huh. I knew what not to do. I was I was taking notes. Yeah, I was taking <laughs> notes. So I didn't get as many whoopings as he did. He got uh-huh. one like every week. If it was a hashtag, it would have been like whoop ass Wednesdays or something. Like he was catching it. Um. So I didn't I didn't adopt that, but my mom would also like you know, would talk to us, you know what I mean? And she would be like, hey, this is why you don't do this. This is why, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, this is why you got to behave this way. This is why you had to behave in school. This is, you know, like, and trying to prepare us for the world that she knew. And so I'm very much like that with my children. Like they, they actually, they don't get whoopings and spankings and all that. I didn't adopt that. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. But they will, they will get a lecture, you know what I mean? Or we'll have a conversation. I want them to understand more. My mother set the precedence for that. Right. Now that's good. That's good. Uh, lastly, I want to talk about advice. What advice would you give? I'm, I'm kind of curious as to to someone who is is going to be a father or you know wants to be a father. Someone like myself. What advice would you give them as far as being a good father? Being a father, I, and I guess maybe being a parent in general, really requires a lot of patience. It, it requires a lot of patience for yourself first. You got to give yourself a lot of grace because you've never done it before. You're experiencing all these things for the first time. As parents, as adults, just in general, we always want to get it right. And you're not going to get it right. And if you focus on how you didn't get it right, you're going to get more things wrong. Mm. You got to be patient with yourself. Be kind to yourself. Right? And you got to be patient with your kids. Your kids have never been kids before. They, this is the first time they've experienced all of this. And so you got to think about all the times, like how many times that you have to like do something before you really got it right, before you really felt like you were an expert at it. Hmm. So they're new to being human. You know what I mean? There are whole adults that are still trying to figure out the human experience. 
a kid at three, four, 10, 12, 16, 25 is still figuring it out. And they need you to be the best manual to this experience that you can be. So if you're a new parent, be patient, be kind to yourself, and know that you're you're doing this for the first time. You both are doing this for the first time. If you're not a parent yet, work on you. Become the best version of yourself that you can possibly be, and then go into parenthood so that 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 kid gets the best parent, you know what I mean, the best version of parenting that you can be. Mm. That inner work is is huge. Ladies and gentlemen, Roscoe Burnham's. That was really good, man. That was really good. Yeah, I, I really like that. I really like that. Um, before I let you go, I want you to just give a, a having a, a chance to talk about whatever you have coming up, any announcements. Obviously, we're all going to be looking out for uh, my life as a black dad special next year. But anything that you know, anyone that follows this podcast can look out for. So um, check out Traumedy. I talk about parenting in that as well. And I talk about a lot of generational trauma and how that how that looks in childhood and going into adulthood and, and, and then even how that affects, you know, your children when you just, you know, if you have them or if you decide to have them. Um, so there's a little bit of that in there as well. So that, that's streaming right now on a lot of platforms, but check it out on Amazon Prime. It's probably the easiest to access. Uh, My Life as a Black Dad is coming out um, next year. Uh, outside of that, man, like I'm just, uh, I'm going to be hitting the road a lot and trying to do more shows. And then I'm, I'm organizing more conversations around mental health in communities of color because we don't talk about mental health mm. enough. Yes. Um, and you know what what does therapy look like and understanding you know what it means to be bipolar if you're bipolar or if you're depressed you know what I mean what what options and resources are available for you understanding that suicide ideation is a real thing and you can't just pray it away <laughs> you know what I mean like you've got to do the work and but we're not even as a culture we're not even recognizing that these things exist sometimes and this is why the suicide rate for black youth for youth of color in general is rising every year so we got to put it into that, right? We're losing children. We're losing children to mental health. So I'm on this mission to get more black and brown people to talk about mental health and the solutions that can come with that. That's amazing. I just had therapy today, man. So hey, I'm, I love I'm, it. I'm right there with you, bro. I'm, I've been on this journey uh, for a minute. So I'm so glad and, and hearing that you are tapping into that and um, uh, making that a part of, uh, of what you do. So kudos to you. Um, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Again, this is Lim Gonzalez, aka Saint. And until we speak again, God bless and take care. Colors of Fatherhood is produced by Josh Rodriguez and Saintly Productions. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast so you can be updated on all future episodes. Make sure to follow us on social media at Stay on the Mic and at Colors of Fatherhood. For all of your inquiries or booking needs, please contact us at saintlybooking at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.